want to invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to turn with me to Luke chapter 23 this morning. Luke chapter 23. One of the most common modern accusations against the Bible or criticisms against the Bible today is that it is a book of myth. That what we find in the scriptures is a collection of religious fables. And in that regard, believing what the Bible says is no different than believing in fairies or magical unicorns. They are the equivalent But the Bible itself takes a different approach. The Bible claims something different than itself. It is not just an abstract collection of ideas. It's not just a kind of uh, glorified Aesop's fables. What the Bible presses in and hammers home over and over again is that this is history. That what you're reading is the acts of God occurring in the lives of real people and real events seeking to bring about His good purposes. This is why the earliest Christians didn't simply preach or confess that Jesus suffered and died, but specifically that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Or as Peter preaches in Acts, that he was delivered over to death by the hands of Pontius Pilate. What they're trying to signal is, this is no fairy tale. This is no fable. This is no myth. This is living history, and we are witnesses to it. And so likewise today, we hear the evidence of history. We see a real event that involved real people, and these historic events have real and serious consequences still for us today. Part of the suffering of Christ can be seen in the passage before us today. And so I invite you to follow along as we read Luke chapter 23 this morning. Then the whole company of them, that is those religious leaders that Luke has just told us about at the end of Luke chapter 22, the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout Judea from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been in enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, "'You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people.' But after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. 
Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt-deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. May God bless the reading of his word. For almost two years now, we have been making our way through the Gospel of Luke with a few breaks. And this morning, we come to chapter 23, where we see the trial of Jesus. And here we see how he, an innocent man, can be found guilty and sentenced to death. More than that, from these verses, we see that Jesus is someone that cannot simply be ignored today. Just the opposite. Who he is, what he did, what he endured is essential to us today if we want to know God and be accepted by him. And all of this that we will see begins with the accusation against an innocent king. The accusation against an innocent king. It may not appear so at first glance, but Luke's opening verses are actually pretty astounding. He says, The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Now again, this follows immediately on from chapter 22, where Jesus had been arrested and tried by the Jewish authorities. They've conducted uh, their own kind of hasty trial. They found him guilty, and now they're bringing him to the Roman authority. And notice it was the whole company that did that. The whole company of who? Well, again, in chapter 22, we're told that it was the elders, it was the chief priest, it was the scribes. This was, we said, the assembly known as the Sanhedrin, the highest legal authority in all of Israel at that time. And they never agreed on anything. In fact, they didn't often believe the same kinds of things. When we look at the kind of uh, two groups that were most prominent, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, they disagreed on a lot of things. One group didn't even believe there would be a resurrection of the dead while the other did. They had very different ideas about how to relate to Rome, and so they were often at each other, arguing with each other, not unlike other legislative bodies today. And yet, here they were, this fractured group in lockstep unity joined together in this purpose to see Jesus killed. They are in full agreement because of their hatred of Christ. And so we see they began to accuse him. And in this accusation, we see, first of all, their sinful scheme their sinful scheme. They all come before Pilate around 6 a.m. in the morning. Uh, They want to be first on the docket before anything else gets going in his day. And notice what they accuse him of. Verse 2, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now, if you were here two weeks ago and we looked at chapter, the end of chapter 22, or if you were just sitting down on a Saturday afternoon reading through all of Luke's gospel in one sitting, which I recommend you do sometime, it take you about three hours, you should immediately say, now hang on a minute. Those charges are not familiar in any way from what we saw in his trial under uh, the Jews just in the last chapter. If we go back to chapter 22, we see that the charge against him is blasphemy. He was speaking against God. He claims to be the divine son of man from Daniel, uh, Daniel's vision. He also claims to be the son of God. And unless that is not clear in your mind that they were upset that 
he was blaspheming and claiming those things, Matthew gives a greater detail about the same incident. And in Matthew's gospel, we see that the high priest tore his robes and says, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. They then spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him. So that's the charge coming out of Luke chapter 22 before the Jewish religious authority, the Sanhedrin. Jesus is guilty of blasphemy and he deserves to die. And that's not a new charge against Jesus. Throughout his ministry, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish religious leaders have consistently charged him with blasphemy. Perhaps you remember way back in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus heals a man and then goes on to tell him, your sins are forgiven. They immediately say, what blasphemy is this? Who but God can forgive sins? And what they did not see was, this was God in the flesh in front of them who was able to forgive sins. Later in John chapter 10, when Jesus tells the Pharisees, I and the Father are one, they immediately pick up rocks and threaten to stone him. Why? For blasphemy. They say, we are going to stone you for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself God. Blasphemy has been the consistent offense. Blasphemy is the sin for which they want to kill him here. That's why they condemn him. But here's the rub. Because the Jews are under Roman authority, they do not have the ability to execute anyone under their legal system. They need the Romans to sign off on the execution. But Rome doesn't consider blasphemy a capital offense. Rome will not execute anyone for the the crime of blasphemy. So they hatched this sinful scheme. Not to present their charges, the real reason why they want to execute him, but rather a different set of charges. Something that will appeal to the conscience of Pilate, they think, and show him to be a threat to the Romans. That's why we not only see their sinful scheme, but we see that the accusations against Jesus were nothing more than concocted charges concocted charges. The Jews come to Pilate because Pilate is the governor of that larger region in which Israel sat. He would have normally been at his formal uh, kind of offices, the seat of power in Caesarea, but he was in Jerusalem because this was the time of the Passover, and he was not there to celebrate the Passover, okay? Uh, Pilate uh, was in no way sympathetic to the Jews. Instead, Pilate was there to keep peace, Because you can imagine what happens in this country during the weekend of July the 4th, right? Uh, You have a kind of increased sense of national pride that takes place. Likewise, the, the equivalent of July 4th for Israel was their deliverance from Egypt, now celebrated in this Passover. All of the Jews from all over the area came, descended on Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, to live, to eat, to worship together, and there was a rise in a sense of nationalistic pride. For them, living under the oppressive regime of Rome, that could mean rebellion. That can mean revolution. That can mean armed resistance. And so Pilate is there to make sure there is no rioting, there is no violence, that the Jews stay calm and in their place. And this is a real threat because just 25 years before these events, when Jesus was a little boy, there was a man from Galilee named Judah who claimed to be the Messiah and tried to lead the people in a revolt against Rome because of their new taxing laws. That was put down, but it was still fresh in the minds of those 
in Rome overseeing the Jews. There was heavy tension between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders hated Pilate. They thought he was greedy. They thought he was self-centered. They thought he was arrogant. And to their defense, Pilate did not help himself any. He would intentionally rile up the Jews and provoke them. In one case, he went into the temple and seized the temple tax, which was there to preserve the temple for the sacrifices. And instead, he used that money given by the Jews, like our tithe and offerings brought in the church. Police come in, seize that money, and go. They build an aqueduct for the larger region. You remember also from Luke chapter 13 how fresh it was in the minds of Israel that for whatever reason, we, we do not know the circumstances. Pilate had went and some individuals, Jews who were seeking to worship by offering sacrifices, had them killed right in front of the altar. So the blood of the animal they were sacrificing and their own blood were mingled before God in great blasphemy. The nation had no love for Pilate, but they needed him. The religious leaders at this moment needed him so that they could have Jesus executed. In order to get his attention, they want Jesus to look like a threat to Rome. So they offer these three baseless charges. First, Jesus accused of rebellious disloyalty, of rebellious disloyalty. They say, we found this man misleading our nation. That is, supposedly preaching and teaching in such a way so as to mislead or seduce the people of Israel into hostility against Rome. It is political sedition. Then they accuse him of rejecting taxes. Rejecting taxes. According to them, Jesus was forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Withhold the duties and assessment of the Roman government, perhaps to buy arms for rebellion. We don't know. They don't ha- we don't have the, the, all the reasons why they justified this or why they said he was rejecting taxes, but that was the accusation. Finally, they accused Jesus of setting himself as a, of a, as a rival authority. Sanhedrin says that Jesus is saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now let's think about so far what we have seen from Luke's gospel. What has he showed us about Jesus? Are the charges true? Is he guilty of these things? The immediate answer is no, not in any way. First of all, Jesus could care less about the Romans in his preaching and teaching. I mean, just go back and skim through the gospels today. Uh, he, he, never, he never tries to encounter Roman authorities. Unlike Paul, who is tasked with evangelizing the Gentiles, Jesus has come for one reason, to woo the people of Israel back to God to help them to see with greater clarity their need of him, the sufficiency of God in their life, and the faith that they need to be right with him. He doesn't care about Rome. And especially in this charge of taxation, it's incredibly ironic because remember not long after Jesus begins full swing in ministry, there was always a spy in the midst. They're always seeking to trap Jesus in what he will say. And someone actually comes up and says, "Uh, so should we pay taxes to Caesar or not, Jesus? And remember what he says? He says, give me the coin. Whose face is on the coin? Whose image is there? They say, Caesar's. And he says, give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and give to God the things that belong to God. Jesus very specifically said, if you live under a government that requires taxes, you pay your taxes. The exact opposite of what they charge him with. What about the charge of being a king? Here it's a little more complicated. It's not quite as clear cut. In one sense, yes, it is clearly a false charge because Jesus never in the gospel says, I am the king of the Jews. He never even really comes out and says, I am the Christ, which is a kingly title, a kingly expectation in the Old Testament. Why does he not do that? Even though he is the Christ. We've said before, they wouldn't understand what he meant. 
They are looking for a king, not as a spiritual leader, but as a political leader. They want a king who's going to come and lead an army against Rome to kick them out of their land that they might worship God as the people of Israel, free from any tyranny. So if Jesus were to come and say, I am the Christ, I am your king, they would say, yay! And they'd all get their swords and say, let's fight, let's go. When are we we going? When's our first battle? But Jesus is not that kind of a king. He's not that kind of a king. So Jesus never claimed to be a king. Therefore, the Jews are misrepresenting him. Yes, he is a king, but no, he never claimed to be. He never claimed to be the Christ. Even when they asked him directly, are you the Christ in the Jewish trial? What does he say? He says, look, you don't really want the answer to this question. Why would I bother to answer it? Even then, he escapes it. He evades it, not being coy, but because... They don't want the kind of king that he has come to be. Jesus is innocent of all these charges just from what we've seen in Luke's gospel. But more importantly, more importantly for Luke, who is, remember, writing this whole gospel to a Roman official, to a senior Roman political officer who is trusted in Christ and is now perhaps wavering in his faith and wondering, is all this really true? It's not only true historically, but is it true that I, a Gentile, a Roman, can find grace with the God of Israel and be saved by their Messiah. And Luke is writing to say, yes, you can. And what does he say here? Not just from Jesus' own teaching is he innocent, but from the Roman government himself, Jesus itself, Jesus is declared not guilty. And we see that through the examination of an innocent king. The examination of an innocent king. Now, when you read John's account of these events in John chapter 18, you get more detail. Not anything that contradicts, just more detail. The Sanhedrin basically show up at Pilate's headquarters and they throw Jesus into the courtyard because, heaven forbid, they go in there and be tainted uh, by being in the palace of of a Gentile. They throw Jesus in there and say, this man's a criminal, we want you to deal with him. And he says, what has he done? And they say, well, why would we bring him if he's not guilty? And he says, fine, if he's guilty, then he's yours. Deal with him according to your law. And then the penny drops and they say, We want you to execute him. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. We want you to put him to death. Now Pilate understands what's going on. So he says, okay, fine, but what are the charges? And they they give out their threefold accusation. But when Pilate is seeking to know what's going on with Jesus, the reality is he's not really concerned for justice. He's not really concerned whether Jesus is innocent or guilty. It's kind of beneath him. The only thing that he's worried about is, is he a threat to Rome or not? Is he in any way a threat to my stability here in this position? Is he going to be a burr in my saddle that gets my head lopped off by Caesar or or gets me put out uh, way out in the middle of the boondock somewhere in the empire? In other words, Pilate has a political preoccupation, a political preoccupation when it comes to his dealings with Jesus. They say, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And on these last words, Pilate's interest is suddenly piqued. Are you the king of the Jews, he asks? Are you really trying to set yourself up as an authority contrary to Rome? Are you a troublemaker, an agitator? And Jesus answered, you've said so. Now, that's a very similar response to what he gave the Sanhedrin in chapter 22. Remember when they asked if he was the son of God? But if Pilate is worried about Jesus being some revolutionary king, we might wonder why he says, okay, I find no guilt in this man, even though he seemingly says, I'm guilty. You said so. You want to know if I'm a king? And you've said it, I'm a king. 
Well, what, what's going on here? Well, the, the thing is, Luke just wants to show you that he's innocent. John wants to tell you why he's innocent. So once again, John 18, you're given this larger picture where Jesus and Pilate actually have a conversation. Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yes, but not in the way you're asking. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And then Jesus replied what we have here, you've said so. But Jesus goes on to say, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Yes, Jesus says, I am a king. You've said so. I am the king of the Jews, but it's not the kind of king that you are thinking of. It's not the kind of king that you're worried about. I'm not here to overturn Rome. I'm here to win the minds and hearts of my people with the truth of God's word. I'm here to lead, to guide, to shepherd them back to their first love. In Pilate's minds, Jesus was not a threat. He was not a political leader. He was not a revolutionary. In fact, he's just a bad philosopher. Pilate's reply is, you're the truth. What is truth? He is a cynical politician. And so Jesus is not a threat to him. He says to the chief priest of the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. And at this point, trial should be over. It should be done. Jesus is released. He's let go. But, but they insist. The Jewish authorities will not let it go. They insist it. Look, he stirs up the people teaching throughout Judea from Galilee even to this place. And now Pilate recognizes he has his out. He's from Galilee? Are you really from Galilee? Yes, he's from Galilee. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, which is where Galilee is, he sent him over to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at that time. Herod is also in Jerusalem for the Passover celebrations. And Pilate says, this is no longer my problem. I am officially passing the buck. Take him to Herod and let Herod deal with him. No trouble, no arguing, no conflict. I don't care whether he's innocent or guilty. I just care whether he's my problem. And now he's from Galilee, he's not my problem. And so the one who has a political preoccupation passes him off to someone else, Herod, who is far less interested in politics. When he sees Jesus, all he wants is a personal performance. A personal performance. Just like Pilate, we've also seen Herod in Luke's gospel before. He is a local ruler who was known for his brutality. He's also somewhat superstitious and enamored with spiritual things. Frankly, he's kind of a loony. He, he loves listening to John the Baptist preach, even though John the Baptist in preaching is telling him, you're a sinner, you're going to hell. You killed your brother so you can marry his wife, you're a sicko. And, and Herod is laughing and saying, yeah, keep going, God. keep going, John, keep going, John doesn't make any sense to me. And it didn't make any sense to Herod's wife either, who was really affronted and basically tricked Herod into killing John the Baptist. Not long after that, Jesus springs to popularity in his ministry and his preaching. You know what Herod thinks? This is the ghost of John the Baptist come back to haunt me. And so he wants to see this Jesus face to face. He wants to know, is this guy real or is he a ghost? And so this is why he is longing, long desired to see, verse 8, Jesus, because he'd heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. He heard that Jesus performs miracles. Jesus, come perform for me. Come, come show me your powers. He questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Unlike his dealings with the Jewish leaders and with Pilate, Jesus doesn't say a word to Herod. And, and we don't know why. I have to think at least two scenarios are plausible. Number one, Jesus is just done. I mean, 
at this point, he, I mean, he knows what's going to happen in the end. He's tired of answering questions and he's just done. That's one option. I think another option might be that he just has no time for Herod. Pilate, the Jews, they actually engaged in conversation. They actually cared something about who Jesus was, not Herod. Herod just sees Jesus as a toy, as his personal plaything, someone that can perform for him. And so Jesus has no time to be engaged with him. And even though he will not talk, the chief priests, the scribes continue vehemently accusing Jesus. He does this, and he does this, and he's this, and he's this. But Jesus remains silent, just as Isaiah said. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Eventually, Herod gets bored. He wants a performance, and if Jesus will not oblige, he will take it upon himself. So verse 11, Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, they sent him back to Pilate. Oh, he's the king of the Jews? Let's dress him like a king. And they sent him back to Pilate. Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this, they had been at enmity with each other. If you remember from the violent, capricious nature of Herod, who slaughtered half of his family, almost tried to slaughter all of his political leaders upon his deathbed, you know that if anyone had no qualms about killing Jesus, it would have been Herod. If there was in any way, any shape or form that he could find guilt in Jesus, he'd have been like, sure, he's guilty, kill him. I find guilt in him. But what does he do? No charge. No guilt. Send him back to Pilate. Do not miss Luke's point here. This is key. Luke is zeroing in on who Jesus is. Not just for, uh, not just for Theophilus to whom he is writing, but for us today. He is in the most elaborate, sophisticated justice system in the world. If there was a way to find him guilty, it would have been found. And the Roman government's official stamp on Jesus was not guilty. Innocent of all charges. Throughout his gospel, Luke has been showing us who Jesus is through his teaching and his preaching and his miracles. And now he's ramping up, getting us ready for the cross. So through his Jewish trial, Jesus was shown to be the Christ, the Son of God, and the Son of Man. Now in his Roman trial, he is shown to be the true King of Israel and the perfectly innocent man. That's the individual that's going to go to the cross in just a few verses, in just a few hours in Jesus' life. With the humble eyes of faith, Jesus is everything that God promised and more. Nevertheless, the last thing that we see here is not just the accusation and the examination, but now the rejection of an innocent king. The rejection of an innocent king. Herod kicks Jesus back to Pilate, dressed as a royal king, but bruised and battered like an inconsequential problem they both believed him to be. Somehow this cruel mockery of Jesus created a friendship where there had previously only been animosity. Nevertheless, Pilate doesn't want anything to do with this man. So he called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he says, Look, you brought me this man. You laid out these accusations. I find no guilt in him. Neither did Herod. He sent him back to us. He says in verse 16, I therefore will punish him and then release him. In other words, Pilate says, Look, I, I don't want any part of this. This is a waste of my time. It's stupid. Get him out of here. But I'm going to throw you a bone. I'm going to have my soldiers beat him as punishment, and then I'll release him. How's that for treating an innocent party? But the people had none of it. Instead, they all crowd together, away with this man, release to us Barabbas. Now, now, now why, what's happened here? He said, I want to release Jesus. I said, no, no, we don't want Jesus to give us Barabbas. 
Is this some kind of negotiation? Well, here's again the thing that Luke assumes you know, but Mark tells us explicitly. At some point, we don't know when, but at some point it became tradition that on the Passover, just as the Jews were released from captivity in Egypt, so the Roman officials would release one criminal of the Jews back to them. Though he was guilty, they would be set free. And so this is what Pilate is doing with Jesus. He's offering to let this be the guy that goes free. And they say, no, we don't want Jesus to be that guy. Give us this other guy, Barabbas. Who is Barabbas? Barabbas was a man who had been thrown to prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and was accused of murder. Pilate thinks he has his escape clause. He thinks he has his way of taking this guy who has no guilt, not mucking up his legal system. Look, here's your guy. It's Passover. I'm going to release him. It's done. But the Jews don't accept him. They don't want him. They don't want him as their king. So, so, so unlike the way that a different crowd welcomed him into Jerusalem riding on a donkey at the beginning of this week, now he is not the welcomed Christ, but a condemned Christ, despised and rejected by men. A condemned Christ. Pilate appealed once more, this man is innocent, let me release him as the custom. But the crowd kept shouting, crucify, crucified him. A third time he said, why, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will punish him and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. You remember John chapter 1? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of the gospels start with a birth narrative. Here's how Jesus came into the world. But John doesn't tell you anything about how Jesus was born. John rewinds the clock. And echoing Genesis chapter 1, he starts with Jesus and eternity. And shows you how this eternal God took on flesh and stepped into this world. It starts with, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and not... There was not anything made that was not made through him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. He goes on to say just a few verses later, this word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It makes us marvel at Christ, but... Right in between those passages is this sobering statement from John. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. It is an astonishing thing in the mystery of God's sovereign plan to save a people for himself that we not only see the glorious love of the eternal God, but side by side we see the twisted wicked hearts of sinful men who see the true light, their creator coming into the world, but they reject him and they turn away from him. It's a shocking thing for us to behold the fullness of the promises of God coming to realization before our eyes as we examine the life of Jesus only to see him now offered up in death by the people he came to save. These people long for a Christ, for a Savior King. Yet when God provides the superlative fulfillment of all their greatest hopes and desires, they only seek to condemn this Christ. Yet even here, even in this unthinkable rejection, Jesus offers a foretaste 
of the beautiful way in which he will still fulfill the Father's plans and purposes. In these final verses, we see the rejected Jesus becomes a sacrificial substitute. A sacrificial substitute. Rather than embrace the offer of Jesus being released, they ask for Barabbas. Again, here's a man who was thrown in prison for insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Now, do you comprehend the bewildering irony of that statement? Can you grasp hold of the unimaginable hypocrisy of these men and women of the crowd, especially of the Jewish religious leaders. They have brought Jesus before Pilate. And what have they claimed about him? That he is an insurrectionist. That he is leading and stirring up trouble. That Israel might revolt against Rome. Therefore, he deserves to die. But when he's found innocent of those charges by Rome and therefore offer it to be released, they demand instead that he still be executed and a man already found guilty of those same crimes to be released. Barabbas had been rightfully accused, he had been fairly examined, and he had been justly condemned for his crimes. He was in prison awaiting execution for the crimes of murder and sedition. Barabbas was the terrorist. He was everything that they've just portrayed Jesus to be. Yet rather than die the death that he deserves, Barabbas will be released and Jesus will take his place on the cross. Jesus is going to be killed for the crimes of another man. A man who was guilty in every way, though Jesus was innocent in every way. What clearer picture can there be in the Bible of the saving work of Christ? Jesus says that according to his Father's will, he came into this world to seek and save the lost. How will he do that? By becoming a substitute before God. By suffering the condemnation that sinners deserve, though he himself never was, is, nor will ever be guilty of any sin. This is what Jesus came to do. And we see even in the taking of the place of Barabbas a picture of that. When we step back and consider the entirety of this passage... If you are at all familiar with history, you will know this is one of the scenes. This is one of the ways in which, historically, a sentiment of anti-Semitism has been fostered around the world. Look at what those Jews did to Jesus. They hated him, so let's hate them. And it's been used for all kinds of inappropriate actions and commentary. But there's two problems with that. First of all, Not only does that anti-Semitism fly in the face of Jesus' own teaching to love our enemies and to pray for those who misuse us, that there's no room for anti-Semitism, there's no room for hating anybody in this world, even a group like ISIS. But it also misses the point of the passage. Phil Riken, president of Wheaton College, says one time he was at a an Easter service that was dramatically portraying the the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And during the trial phase, some of the the members of the acting troupe slipped out quietly from the stage and mingled in among the crowds. So at the appropriate time, with those up on the stage, they rose up from amongst the congregation shouting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And Reichen says at first, he was so caught up in what was happening, he wanted to grab the guy and sit him down and say, Stop it! We don't want him crucified! But then he realized why they were doing that. Why it is that they were standing in the midst of the audience yelling, crucify him, crucify him. The reality of this very passage struck home to Riken. 
Yes, the Jewish leaders are guilty of the murder of Jesus. Yes, the crowd was guilty of the murder of Jesus. Pilate and Herod, the soldiers are all guilty of the murder of Jesus, but so are we. We are also guilty of the murder of Jesus because of our sin. We are just as guilty as if we were in that crowd because of his innocence. More than that, because of his righteousness, though, from his murder, we can find forgiveness and hope and life because on the cross, he took our place. On the cross, he stood in for us just like he did for Barabbas. For all the sins that we've ever committed and ever will commit, Jesus suffered and bled and died under the wrath of God. This is why Jesus cannot simply be ignored. You're either going to mock him or you're going to accept him. There's, there's no in-between. You're either rejecting him or you are embracing him. This morning, we have to come to that decision. Will we reject him as an unneeded afterthought or will we trust him as our much-needed savior? Not just once in a prayer with a raised hand at the end of a service, but daily if we claim to be his people, will we follow him as our king? Father, that's our prayer this morning, that we come to a clear decision in our mind. Perhaps we're here and maybe we've heard about Jesus. Maybe we know that we should be at church thinking about him, but we've not clearly seen how it is that Jesus brings us to God. Father, for those, I pray that you will have opened their minds and hearts to understand this gospel truth, that Jesus died in place of sinners to bring them to you, to bring all of us to you. But Father, probably perhaps more of us here are those that already know the gospel. We've believed the gospel. For years we have claimed to be Christ's people. Father, the real question for us, the real decision we must come to is whether or not we're going to act like the crowds on a daily basis and reject Jesus as the king or whether we're going to embrace him, whether we're going to joyfully, lovingly follow after him knowing that his burden as king, as our shepherd is light and easy. The Father, he gives us the grace we need to pursue him, to live as his people. Father, I pray that wherever we're at, we will see, God, that, that Jesus was both the eternal Son of God in the flesh, but Father, he was also the innocent King who was tried and convicted in our place. May that lead us not only to trust him, but to worship him. Amen.